Welcome to Beauty and Mr. B, my podcast. I'm Mr. B. Today, I'd like for listeners to catch a glimpse of how they can see more of what's beautiful in the world by enlarging our understanding of language. Did you know that each word in our working vocabulary provides a framework, a structure through which we process reality? A reality exists in large part only to the extent that there is a word for it. Does one just get up in the morning? You were asleep and now you're awake? Or is there something more? Maybe that's all there is within your home, but in Italian, there's another space, another reality, an in-between state, one that exists between awake and asleep. Dormivelia. D-O-R-M-I-V-E-G-L-I-A. Quote, the space that stretches between sleeping and waking, unquote. I don't know about you, but my reality has just been enlarged. And now I'll probably be a little more considerate of Mrs. B when she rises in the morning. Why? There's a word for this lovely, half-dreamlike, in-between state. Here's another reality. One that exists because there's a word for it. Cuarencia. It's Spanish. Q-U-E-R-E-N-C-I-A. It's that place from which one can draw strength. Cuarencia. Have you ever felt unglued, exhausted, overwhelmed? I have. Just knowing that there is a word for that grounding and energizing place Querencia gives me the confidence that I could find that place, that that place exists, that I can go on, that I can do more than just survive, but renewed and strengthened and energized, I can thrive amid even the worst trials and tribulations of everyday life. My third example, an example of how language helps to enlarge and define our sense of reality is one I shared to express a feeling I'm not sure my six-year-old granddaughter Mabel knew to exist, at least not until I used the word. Saudade, S-A-U-D-A-D-E. It's Portuguese for, quote, the love that remains, unquote. In January, Mabel and her family were visiting us in Chicago, but the next day they were leaving and they would return home to Colorado. The look on Mabel's face in that moment when our eyes met, when she knew that even though she would not be here physically, but that her love would remain here with me in my heart, expressed a depth of feeling that went beyond, I'll miss you, or even, I love you. It's true, Mabel, and it's also true for my grandson, Ozzy. Saudade, even though we're more than 1,000 miles away, our hearts remain connected. The whole point is this. The words that exist and the way they are understood largely define our perception of what is real and what is true. I'm afraid that in the modern world today, our sense of what is real and true is gradually becoming more narrow a reduction that is reflected in our language as we rely increasingly on visual media movies, TV, especially online platforms, the size of our vocabularies continues to shrink. And even more, 
the ways in which we understand the words we do know have also been reduced, limiting further our access to the full scope of reality. My goal today is to give listeners at least a glimpse of what we've lost and continue to lose when modern culture reduces and simplifies our language. How will I reveal this loss? Through an examination of three words, three lenses through which, if more broadly understood, our perceptions of what is real and true can be substantially enlarged and we can see more of the beauty that surrounds us. For this episode, I owe a debt of gratitude to the work of Stephen Jenkinson, whose research into the entomology of words, the historical roots and histories of language, has helped to greatly enlarge my own knowledge and inspire me to share an episode on words with you. In the same spirit, I'd also like to publicly thank a former student, Ella Kinsman, and her fiancé, Matt Dean, for so kindly introducing me to the work of Jenkinson. In his book, Coming of Age, Jenkinson examines the roots of many words, not just the ones I'd like to discuss here. The first word I'd like to discuss in this episode is a Native American word for deer, wawashkesh. The Native Americans I'll be referring to in this episode are the Algonquin people. Their language is Anishinaabe, which means original person. In Anishinaabe, our word deer translates to wawashkesh. To properly understand the Algonquin word for deer, we must return, the best we can at least, to the origin of language itself, an origin that can be found in the world of nature. Language, like every other thing that is made by man, mimics or imitates the natural world. Think about that for a moment. What originally inspired the sounds that make up the sounds of our language are, in fact, the sounds of nature. Jenkinson is more poetic on this subject than I can be. Quote, Language stirs in humans when the sounds of the living world are overheard. Imagine that all the sounds of the world are the, are the world murmuring to itself, giving its voice saying its many true names. Imagine that humans get to overhear this murmuring when they obey the living world. Imagine that our obeisance is our speech. Let me repeat that one more time. Quote, language stirs in humans when the sounds of the living world are overheard. Imagine that all the sounds of the world are the world murmuring to itself, giving its voice, saying its many true names. Imagine that humans get to overhear this murmuring when they obey the living world. Imagine that our obeisance is our speech. For Jenkinson, language in its original form, in its most pure state, seeks to reflect the natural sounds of reality itself. Language within this form is truth. It is within this framework, this natural framework, that Jenkinson would come to understand the word wawashkesh as a sound of the world. Here's Jenkinson telling the story of the Algonquin word for deer. 
Quote, it just so happens that in the corner of the province I live in, the field grass grows about knee-high by early August, if the rains are kind and no higher. The sand beneath it and the cooling evenings would have it so. Even with the rainfall, the ends of the grass become brown and friable by that time, a sign that summer is making its autumnal way. And as it happens, the fawns born in midwinter, those that survive, have grown by mid-August so that their stomachs are brushing those brown ends as they make their way through a meadow. Deer are all stealth when moving, especially in the open, alert in a way that would induce coronary arrest or free-floating anxiety in many humans. I think you really need to see this image to have like a visual in your head before I can go on. So let me repeat that paragraph. Quote, It just so happens that in the corner of the province I live in, the field grass grows about knee-high by early August. If the rains are kind and no higher, the sand beneath it and the cooling evenings would have it so. Even with the rainfall, the ends of the grass become brown and friable by that time, a sign that summer is making its autumnal way. And as it happens, the fawns born in midwinter those that survive have grown by mid-August so that their stomachs are brushing those brown ends as they make their way through the meadow. Deer are all stealth when moving, especially in the open, alert in a way that would induce coronary arrest or free-floating anxiety in many humans I know." Unquote. I hope you've got it now. Here's the rest of Jenkinson's story. Quote, Given all of this, if you are downwind of the deer on a calm day as they make their hesitant way, and you are stock still at the right time, and if your jaw is hinged open enough to extend your hearing to the cavity of your mouth and cranium, and if your creation story and your psychology has not placed you squarely at the center of life, and so you've managed something like an existential humility, known as humaneness in other times and places, you might hear a kind of swishing sound as their bellies course the grass tips, a whisper of late summer song and grass. If so, you too might have come up with a word that imitates a yearling deer coming through yearling grass at summer's fine, burgeoned, opportune blessing time. And it might have sounded like what it was. Wabashkesh, unquote. Let me say this one more time. Here's Jenkinson, quote, Given all of this, if you are downwind of the deer on a calm day as they make their hesitant way, and you are stock still at the right time, and if your jaw is hinged open enough to extend your hearing to the cavity of your mouth and cranium, and if your creation story and your psychology has not placed you squarely at the center of life, and so you've managed something like an existential humility known as humaneness in other times and places, you might hear a kind of swishing sound as their bellies course the grass tips, a whisper of late summer song in grass. If so, you too might have come up with a word that imitates a yearling deer coming through yearling grass at summer's fine, burgeoned, opportune blessing time. And it might have sounded like what it was. Wawashkesh, unquote. 
Now that you have this story of the origins of language clearly in mind, here's the question. So what? Why does this matter? Well, I want you to know that it matters to me because understanding words like wawashkesh help connect us with the beauty of the world and of ourselves. How? By connecting us with fundamental truths. Language in its purest form, its original form, has the ability to connect us directly with what is most true. Let's start with this. The name for deer in Algonquin sounded like what it was, Wawashkesh. As Jenkinson himself acknowledged, it's, quote, a word that imitates a yearling deer coming through yearling grass at summer's fine blessing time, unquote. The key here is the word imitates. You see, language in its purest form reveals some truth about the natural world. And this is a truth that most closely connects who we are as humans with the natural world. The sounds of nature become the sounds of our own language. The sounds of our language originate from and reflect the sounds of the natural world. We are connected by language to this fundamental truth of our relationship with the rest of the natural world. Even more, the Algonquin approach to language serves as a source of guidance, guiding us, if we're willing to listen, to our proper place within the natural world. Nature provides the reality. The reality is Wawashkash, the stomachs of fawns born in midwinter brushing against the brown ends of field grass while the fawns make their way through the meadow. This is not a reality that I created. This reality is something outside myself. It's something outside of my will. It's something external. And what about humankind? In this rendering of reality, human beings, at least in the Algonquin world, obey this natural reality. We in the modern world have named this animal deer, a term entirely disconnected from the sounds of nature. If someone were to ask, why do we call such a creature deer, what would you say? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't know what to say. You see, today we are that disconnected from reality. But if you were Algonquin and the same question was asked, I suspect that you might know the answer. Our word for deer is nothing more or less than a sound of the world. In naming the deer Wawashkesh, we are simply obeying the reality disclosed by the natural world. Think of how different our world might look if we, like the Algonquin, sought to understand and obey reality, living within the laws of nature. That, my friends, would be quite a beautiful sight. I'd like to move now from a consideration of the world to a consideration of ourselves. The indigenous approach to language, if it's obeyed, also carries with it the potential to bring out the beauty that exists within ourselves. Here I need to refer back to Jenkinson. Do you remember all those ifs in the second paragraph of Jenkinson's story? The knowledge embedded within the word wawashkesh, Jenkinson understood, doesn't just somehow automatically come to you just because. 
Truth is something that must be reached for. It requires effort. According to Jenkinson, certain inner qualities must first be present before a person can reach what is true. One such inner quality that must be cultivated is stillness. The truths of Wawashkesh will come to you, but as Jenkinson acknowledged, only, quote, if you are stock still at the right time. Stock still, meaning truth arrives after one has successfully cultivated within himself or herself the qualities of a calm and patience, the discipline to be and remain still. Stillness, however, is not enough. Jenkinson understood that the truth will show itself only, quote, if your jaw is hinged open enough to extend your hearing to the cavity of your mouth and cranium, unquote. How many people do you know who can listen and listen that closely? Again, truth emerges when and only when we've already developed enough capacity to focus, to pay attention, and to listen, to listen closely. All this, according to Jenkinson, depends upon the development of our capacity for humility. Hearing the sound wawashkesh happens only, quote, if your creation story and your psychology has not placed you squarely at the center of life, and so you've managed something like an existential humility known as humaneness in other times and places, unquote. Not until, quote, you've managed something like an existential humility known as humaneness, unquote. In other words, understanding true knowledge requires that we first cultivate within ourselves the capacity to detach from our own selves and become open and receptive to all that surrounds us. According to Jenkinson, and I agree, the cultivation of each one of these human qualities, humility, listening, and stillness, allows us to better understand the natural world, allows us to better understand the connection that exists between nature and humanity, and allows us to better understand our proper place as human beings within the natural order of reality. What most surprises and amazes me about all that is this. All this knowledge and wisdom about the world and about ourselves is embedded within language, within one word, in fact, wawashkesh, wow, which brings us to our second example, the example of beauty. This is not a word that we need to spend as much time with. Why? By listening to this podcast, you already have a conception that what is beautiful is so much more than what society teaches us. All we need to do is be still, listen to our hearts, and stay present within humility. Let's do this together. How about if we start by putting into words what society teaches us about beauty? That word, I think, is glamour. In January, I searched the term beauty on Google. Here's what I found. The top 10 hits of Google turned up beauty salons nearby, beauty companies, beauty tips, beauty trends, beauty product reviews, and, quote, must-have beauty products, unquote. 
Within the top 10, there was also an article written for the magazine Psychology Today titled The Science of Beauty. This article informed readers about which aspects of their physical appearance they needed to pay closest attention to. Things like body symmetry, waist-to-hip ratio, the baby face, appearing taller, clear skin, things like that, if readers wanted to gain social status and make more money. Modern culture has reduced our conception of beauty to something purely physical for material benefit. But by now, if you've been listening in on this podcast, you're already beginning to understand that the word beauty extends far beyond the physical and material. In this larger and more inclusive sense, beauty cannot be reduced to measurement and quantification. Beauty is so much more than skin deep. In just a few episodes of this podcast, here's a few of the truths that have been revealed by our attention to the nature of beauty. One, I've reminded you that seeing reality is so much a matter of perception. The narrower our vantage point on reality, the less beauty we can see. The wider our vantage point, the more beauty will be revealed. Two, Beauty is a quality that exists outside ourselves as a feature of reality, a reality that shows glimpses of itself to us, but only and only if we can remain humble, open, and receptive. Remember, beauty is in control, not us. Three, endless beauty also exists within ourselves in the form of capacities and qualities, attributes like the ability to reason, to discern between what is true and what is false, to feel with and for others, to love. Each quality that we receive is a gift, a present unspeakably beautiful in itself. Four, like a plant, each of our qualities has within it the capacity to grow and bloom in its own unique magnificence. When I see Mrs. B smile, for example, I am witness to the flowering of her individual, distinctive capacity to love. And how much can we grow and cultivate our spiritual qualities? Five, there is no end. The beauty of our physical appearances is limited, but our ability to develop the capacities of knowledge and love, for example, are without limit. These qualities, these higher conceptions of what is beautiful, have no end. Beauty, in a word, is infinite. That's why I've never attempted to define the word beauty. It is impossible to pin down the essence of what is beautiful. Beauty, like all spiritual qualities, is endless. We can catch glimpses of the beautiful here and there. We can know some of its features, however incomplete. But because we're human, and therefore finite beings, we cannot fully comprehend the infinitude of what constitutes the essence of beautiful. You see, one of the beauties of this podcast is that being based upon the concept of beauty, beauty and Mr. B never has to end. For our third and final segment of this episode, I'd like to return to the work of Stephen Jenkinson. I know how much I've learned from his examination of the word ambivalence, and I'd like to share some of what I've learned with you. Let's begin with the ways in which we understand the term ambivalence today. 
The dictionary defines ambivalence as, quote, the state of having mixed feelings or contradictory ideas about something or someone. Here are some synonyms. Unsure, doubtful, uncertain, indecisive, as in, quote, I'm ambivalent about registering for the AP exam in European history, unquote. In an extreme state, ambivalence can be understood in terms of paralysis, an inability to act that comes with feeling pulled in incompatible directions. The connotations associated with this modern definition seem to be all negative. Ambivalence is viewed as something of a moral failing in our world, a world that values certainty and decisiveness. To be ambivalent today is to be weak. To be ambivalent today is to be something less than competent. To be ambivalent today is to lack the ability to make a clear decision. Because of these negative connotations, the experience of ambivalence can be a source of real anxiety. Here's Jenkinson, quote, Never understood as any kind of strength or competence or ability, we are warned away from ambivalence at a young age and experience real anxiety whenever it comes to call. Ambivalence is something of a moral failing in a time of modern addiction to certainty. What's most interesting for me is that as Jenkinson uncovered the history of the word ambivalence, my own understanding of our world was enlarged in several respects. First, as I gained a broader understanding of this concept, I found that ambivalence was something to be embraced rather than avoided. Ambivalence actually has value. Second, in surveying the historical transformation of ambivalence over time, I came to a more complete understanding of modern culture, of our culture, as narrow and oppressive. But third, and for me most important, this enlarged understanding of ambivalence put me into closer touch with what must necessarily happen if we are to learn, to know, and to progress. First, I'd like to discuss the value of ambivalence. How? By looking at the history of the word. In this way, we can broaden our understanding of reality in what I think is a constructive way. The prefix of ambivalent is ambi, A-M-B-I. In one sense, the prefix ambi means both or, quote, pertaining to both, unquote. Yet, digging deeper, Jenkinson found an older meaning, one closer to our word, around. For Jenkinson, and for me, this began to change everything. Here's Jenkinson, quote, The prefix around doesn't calculate or count. It's a relational word, and it signals something spatial, and it registers something like plurality, like the consequence that rises up from diversity something that rises when you move around the possible and the impossible things. I think this is a quote that needs repeating. Quote, the prefix around doesn't calculate or count. It is a relational word, and it signals something spatial, and it registers something like plurality, like the consequence that rises up from diversity, something that rises when you move around the possible and the impossible things, unquote. How does moving from ambi as both to ambi as around begin to change everything? 
Both implies two and two in conflict, a battle between two. It's either or. One wins in the battle of indecision. There's one winner in the battle of uncertainty. So what about around? The term around carries with it no such suggestion of conflict, of division, of the battle between contradictions that pertain to both. There is no sense of either or in around. Instead, the image of the circle that follows from around conjures the possibility of cooperation rather than competition, of inclusiveness rather than exclusivity, of win-win rather than win-lose. The word around implies both and thinking rather than either or thinking. Even more, the image of the circle in the prefix around suggests more than two options, more than two thoughts, ideas, or feelings. Around indicates plurality, diversity without limit. A circle can hold countless diverse ideas together. The whole word is ambivalence. So what about balance? Its Latin origin means strength. Valence in Latin gives us the word valor, V-A-L-O-U-R, a word that indicates the exhibition of great courage in the face of danger, especially in battle. Someone who exhibits valor from valence is someone who is worthy of public recognition, often as a war hero, someone who has shown the greatest strength, outstanding bravery. Okay, now that we know something about these historical roots, let's put ambi and valence together as we seek a more complete picture of what this word was actually intended to communicate. I like the way Jenkinson puts it, quote, Ambivalence is the capacity to entertain a diversity of possibilities or tendencies at the same time without recourse to the premature and often unnecessary decision to vanquish plurality for the sake of certainty, unquote. I need to repeat it. Quote, ambivalence is the capacity to entertain a diversity of possibilities or tendencies at the same time, without recourse to the premature and often unnecessary decision to vanquish plurality for the sake of certainty, unquote. What is Jenkinson trying to say? In our modern culture, remember, the indecisiveness associated with ambivalence is widely considered to be a weakness, a sign of inability or even incompetence, something to be avoided. Yet, in reality, when the history of ambivalence is taken into account, what we consider today as a weakness actually turns out to be a strength, a quality to be cultivated. It takes true courage, genuine strength not to jump to a decision, especially in our fast food world, just for the sake of certainty, but to sit instead within all the possibilities indefinitely until the path to the best possible decision clears. Here's how Jenkinson sees it. Quote, the etymology tells us that ambivalence has, for the balance of its semantic life, been a skill born of being a child of a diverse world, not an affliction born of weakness of character. Here's Jenkinson again, quote, The etymology tells us that ambivalence has, for the balance of its semantic life, been a skill born of being a child of a diverse world, not an affliction born of weakness of character. Unquote. I think you and I can agree. Today we are all children of a diverse world. Under these circumstances, in this diverse world, 
The strength required to be and stay within ambivalence is a quality to be honored, respected, and embraced. Words have the capacity, I believe, to transform the ways we think, what we believe, and how we act in the world, but only if and when we decide to pay close enough attention. There is a second way that broadening my understanding of ambivalence has enlarged my own sense of reality. It has helped me to better know the underlying state of modern society and therefore begin to know how society might move forward again. I can't speak for you, but whenever I learn something new, a whole new set of questions, deeper questions, usually follow. So when I learned the true meaning of ambivalence, for example, here's the question that entered my mind. Why has modern society transformed what's truly a strength into a weakness? Here's another way of asking pretty much the same question. Why our obsession in today's world with decisiveness and certainty? The answer I'd like to explore has to do with what I understand to be the crisis of identity that characterizes modern society. What exactly is the crisis? The crisis is one of insecurity. We live increasingly in a world characterized by instability, uncertainty, irrationality, even absurdity. It's natural in such a world that more and more people also feel unstable, uncertain, and out of control. In a word, insecure about, quote, who I am, unquote, my own personal identity. Incidentally, this pervasive sense of insecurity is expressed in the anxiety, stress, and depression of those many students who asked me to do this podcast. Well, what does Jenkinson have to say about this? About the reason why the strength of ambivalence has, in our own time, been turned into a weakness. Here's how I understand Jenkinson. In a society so crippled by a pervasive sense of instability and insecurity, people have become obsessed with control, compelled to act decisively with certainty. We constantly try our best to regain a sense of order in a world that seems to be descending into chaos. Here's how Jenkinson says this, quote, Real cultures affirm other real cultures, as initiated humans do initiated humans. They aren't unnerved or diminished by them. For a culture deeply at home in the world, ambivalence is a skill that learns as it goes and mitigates against accretion. For a culture adrift, that's us, I think, habitually exercising dominion wherever it goes, ambivalence is an affliction best treated with certainty. The more the better. The change in the meaning of the word probably signals a kind of homelessness of the soul. Here's Jenkinson again. Quote, Real cultures affirm other real cultures, as initiated humans do initiated humans. They aren't unnerved or diminished by them. For a culture deeply at home in the world, ambivalence is a skill that learns as it goes and mitigates against accretion. For a culture adrift, remember, that's us. Habitually exercising dominion wherever it goes, ambivalence is an affliction best treated with certainty. The more the better. The change in the meaning of the word probably signals a kind of homelessness of the soul. Unquote. 
I hope you don't mind my dialoguing here with one Jekinson wrote, but that's what I do. I engage in active dialogue with whoever I read. Try it sometime. Actually, it's a lot of fun. Anyway, in this reading, Jenkinson distinguishes between our culture, one that's artificial, and what he calls a, quote, real culture, unquote. Why is our culture artificial? In my mind, it's because we're not honest with ourselves. We act as if we're certain, as if we're decisive, as if we're in control, when, in fact, we're increasingly uncertain, indecisive, and we're definitely not in control. We do our best to hide the reality that, in fact, we are weak and feel powerless. A real culture, for Jenkinson, is one that has the strength to face this reality, that our control has limits, that life is full of uncertainty, indecisiveness, and difficulty, and, at the same time, to know, and still know, to certainly know, that it's okay This sense of security, this knowing that it's okay, this acceptance of ourselves, however imperfect we may be, allows a real culture, one that lives within reality, to accept the uncertainties inherent within a diverse and unpredictable world. Well, we've come this far, but the question still remains. Where does this knowledge of ambivalence lead us? It might not lead us anywhere but I think it has the potential to help lead us in the direction of a true starting point, a place where the path to progress can reveal itself. First, we need to be completely and totally honest with ourselves. We need to be honest about the present state of society. We need to face the reality that today, civilization as we know it is in a state of decline. Its future is uncertain. We also have to be honest with ourselves we have to face the reality that our own insecurities reflect this state of uncertainty that exists in today's world. This is the beginning, the being honest about our insecurities that clears the path to progress. When a person denies or avoids the truth, moving forward becomes an impossibility. The same is true for whole societies. But when an individual or a society faces and accepts the whole of reality, every progress now becomes a possibility. How does this work? In other words, why would embracing the truth of our own insecurities allow for us to move forward, to progress? Because I believe entering the space of I'm not sure and I don't know opens the door to the mysteries of learning. Here I thought I'd start with Jenkinson, who has a way with words about the nature of learning. Quote, The programs of certainty are an assault on mystery, bringing mystery to heel, training it to pee in the box in the corner. Learning is like a counterintuitive willingness to be mystified, to be on the receiving end of a world that in its dignified manner, does not give itself away or succumb or dissolve into its constituent parts. Learning is the case you make for mystery, and ambivalence is the courtesy learning extends to what it would romance. Wow, that's a lot. I need to repeat this. Quote, The programs of certainty are an assault on mystery, bringing mystery to heel, training it to pee in the box in the corner, Learning is like a counterintuitive willingness to be mystified, 
to be on the receiving end of a world that, in its dignified manner, does not give itself away, or succumb, or dissolve into its constituent parts. Learning is the case you make for mystery, and ambivalence is the courtesy learning extends to what it would romance." Unquote. Even after two readings, and I've read this a few more times than that, I cannot pretend to completely understand all that Jenkinson has to say. But that, I think, is precisely the point. Genuine learning involves the opening of ourselves toward the mysteries of what we do not know, what we cannot know completely. This state, living within mystery, is the state where true learning takes place. Here, I can speak only for myself. The place of which Jenkinson speaks, mystery, is the place I seek to inhabit. It's the place I want to spend my every moment. It is this gray place of ambivalence, indecisiveness, where mystery surfaces that promotes my growth as a person and allows for what I've learned to be of help to others. This place where mystery resides is the place where I feel most alive. Based on my experience, I strongly recommend that you immediately relinquish all pretense of certainty, all pretense that you're actually in control, and join me in the freedom that comes with living the truth and in the freedom that comes with embracing the mysterious beauty of our own identities. Before I sign off, I need to remind my listeners of the three pleases. Yes, to me they're important. Please, number one, please subscribe to this podcast. I think it's pretty much available everywhere by now. That way, you'll be notified whenever a new episode is released. Please, number two, I want to stay in touch. You can start with Instagram, beauty.mrb. Another way is by email, beautymrb at gmail.com. And don't forget the website, beautymrb.org. Remember, every source I refer to is posted on my website. It's there for you, so please take advantage. Investigate the truth for yourself. And please, number three, if what I've been sharing speaks to you, as it does for me, then please spread the word. Share this podcast with friends, family, and anyone and everyone you know, even people you don't know. Thank you for listening. Until next time, peace.